Good morning. Great to see you this morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and what a delight to be with you. Um, I have to just say thanks, worship team, and Kaylin, um, you're pretty special. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the rest of you are special too, but you're not my daughter, so there you go, there you go, all right. Hey, uh, praise God, so glad to be with you. Would you turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 5? Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to work our way all the way through the chapter. We'll end in chapter 6, verse 8. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture with you, please go grab one outside. We love to be in God's Word here. Uh, we're convinced that God's Word is authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's useful, and it's practical for our daily living. And so I encourage you to grab one, and if you don't own one, you can take that and bring it home with you and uh, receive that as a gift from us to you. Uh, well, I wonder, have you ever tried really hard at something only to fail miserably? <laughs> Anybody else, right? So uh, I've done that. I've been that. This summer for me has been the summer of what I might say uh, trying, to learning go- trying to learn golf, okay? Uh, I- I'm trying to learn golf this summer. I love to learn new things. I love to try new things. And I tend to be in the camp because, you know, if I apply myself well enough, if I try hard enough, if I get the right instruction, I ought to be able to do this. I ought to be able to find some success in this. That's just how my brain is. Is, is wired, whether that's reality or not, okay? And, and so as the summers progressed, I started watching YouTube videos. I started going out. It was about like 35 degrees. I put some turf out in my driveway and started hitting golf balls off my turf. I wanted to learn how to play golf. I went to the driving range more, time than I should, uh, more times than I should admit. And I've, I've even played uh, several rounds of golf. And, and I was getting kind of excited about it. I was thinking, hey, this is finally working. I, I'm making some good contact with the ball. And, and I feel like I know a little bit of what I'm doing. I was starting to gain some confidence and maybe even thinking I could play golf with some people that I didn't think I could because I'd embarrass them and, you know, all these things. But then in, in the last two weeks, I don't know if any of you golfers have experienced this, but, but every time I swing my club, it's like I can't even feel my hands, right? It, it's like I'm not even there. I'm like in this extra body ex- experience and I'm looking at myself going, man, that was awful. <laughs> and, and I keep trying to hit the ball and where once it was going a certain direction in a certain way, now it's not doing that at all. All. It's a wild experience, and it's been frustrating. And for this achiever kind of guy, I don't like it. <laughs> I, took a, I took some time off this week, and I, I played a round of golf, and I was excited about it, about it. I was with a couple of good friends, and we got out there, and I tell you, it was not a pretty sight. Okay? It, was, it was pretty profoundly awful. And, and all that confidence, that can-do attitude just started flying into the woods with the balls that I was hitting there, right? It, it sunk in the water. I mean, I, I, I realized I still have a long way to go. And as I step back and I consider that, I'm reminded of one of the things that I think I'm often tempted with. I'm tempted to think that by my power, by my might, by my acumen, by my ability, by my hard work, I can actually do something. And so the song that we just sang resonated profoundly with me. I want us to sing that again. I'd have the team just come up and sing that probably six times and I'd be good. You'd be spared a sermon here this morning. No, friends, when I don't achieve, I, I can become easily discouraged. And that's, that's a thing for me. And I, I realize that as I'm faced with my, my shortcomings in, in golf. And, and though this propensity might be particularly acute with me, I don't think I'm the only one that tends to think that way. See, uh, whether we're at school or in business or, or whether we consider how well our our family is functioning at home or, or whether we think about how many fish we're going to catch or how well this silly little ball around a big course we, we often put great stock in our abilities, whether as students, as business leaders, as, as moms or dads, as, as husbands or wives, as wannabe athletes, right? 
And when we don't achieve, when we fail to meet these arbitrary standards, we, we often face obstacles that seem insurmountable. We either start to navel gaze, like I was doing a little bit this week, if I'm honest. We start to think, woe is me, or we get angry, and, and we start to cast blame on everyone around us for our own shortcomings and our own misery. But, but what if there's an alternative? Okay? What if there's an alternative to this way of thinking? What if there's a better option for living where we're not so focused on what we can or cannot do, what we bring to the table, table where, where the people around us and the circumstances in which we find ourselves are not our limiting factors, where, where our experience of the good life doesn't require us to get proficient at golf or other things? What, what if our confidence and our hope has nothing to do with what we bring to the table? But in fact, it has everything to do with what's already been brought. With what's already been brought. Church, there's a story in the Old Testament uh, that I often come back to in, in varying forms. And, and, and the people of God have been traveling throughout the desert for a long time. And God has promised them, look, I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be good. It's the promised land. And, and the people are excited about it. And it's been a long and an arduous journey. And they finally get to the edge of it. Of it. They're in this place called Kadesh Barnea. And, and Moses says, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take 12 of you and I want you to go into the promised land, into this land that God promised to give us. And I want you to check it out. And I want you to see what's going on there so that we can make appropriate provisions for uh, taking the land. And these spies go in there and they hear this bustle in the valley and they sort of peek their heads, I envision, over this hilltop. And what do they see but, they, but giants? There are giants down there in that valley and they're overwhelmed. They're, they're floored. These are big people. They, the text says that they, they look like uh, that they're grasshoppers next to the, the bigness of these men. And the text in Numbers 13 calls them Nephilim. And these spies, these, these mighty men of Israel, just melt at least 10 out of the 12 of them. They're, they're afraid of the Nephilim. And they bring back this negative report to Moses and to the people, and it becomes contagious. And ultimately, all that the people have been working towards, all that the people have been following God for, uh, sort of backfires. And the people say, no, the giants are too big. We're not going to do this. God's not going to show up. He's not going to come through for us. And they back up from the promised land, and they pay a severe price. The whole thing becomes a catastrophic fail for the people of Israel. It's a dark spot in their history. Now, I can't prove exactly when Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And, and I can't prove how it precisely fits into the timeline of Israelite history. It's, it's writing. But Moses clearly wrote in an era where the people of God were tempted to heed the rulers of the earth over the power of God. Okay? Uh, Moses is writing to the people of Israel during this time when there was many temptations for them to, to look at the people of the earth and to say, wow, those people are powerful. God must not be able to come through for us here in this, in this instance. They're tempted to put their stock in their own ability, in their own acumen, and in fact to say, you know what, because uh, we don't have what's considered to be the necessary resource for fighting giants, we're out. Okay? That, that was where the people of God were at. And see, I'm convinced that, that part of Moses' objective in writing this book of the beginnings, this book of Genesis, is to give the people some perspective, some much needed perspective. And what we'll see in the text uh, today is that, yes, no, no amount of human ingenuity can overcome the curse. The giants, they're actually real, that pain is real, that the curse is real, that death is real. But in fact, praise God, human ingenuity, human acumen, human power 
aren't what's necessary for thriving in God's kingdom, in God's cosmos, in God's economy. See, though the people would have considered it necessary to fight giants by perhaps becoming giants themselves, by improving their acumen, and knowing that to be impossible, they backed off. The truth is that becoming giants has nothing on becoming aligned with God and his greater plan, his greater design. And so with that, with this desire to to align ourselves with God's design, we turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 5, starting in verses 1 and 2. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Moses writes, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay. Now, the, the, the first thing I want you to notice here is this word generations. This shows up a lot throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, the Hebrew for the, the word generations is toledot. And anytime the word generations, toledot, shows up in Genesis, it marks a new section of the text. And so here there's this new section, and in this new section, uh, Moses uh, sends a reminder of Edenic design for mankind. Okay? Ideal. This is a reminder for how it's supposed to work. Just in case you forgot, after the tragedy of Cain, remember uh, Mark led us in a great sermon last week in the study of Cain and Abel, and and here uh, Lamech shows up, Cain Cain shows up, and he murders his brother, and then in the line of Cain, Lamech shows up, and he's a a polygamist, and he's a child child murderer, Uh, and, and so all things are going kind of crazy here in the line of Cain, just in case you forgot, just in case things started to look too dark, Moses reminds you, this is the way God created it to be. This is God's design for the cosmos. This is God's Edenic project. See, it's true, the the line of Cain becomes irrecoverable. But remember what we heard at the end of chapter 4. Kaylin brought it to our attention earlier. I love saying that. Kaylin brought it to our attention earlier. That's great. Church, God appointed Eve another child. God appointed Eve, another child, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God had appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. There he is. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Church, there's hope in the midst of the depravity. The Cainite line, the line of Cain was headed down the path of destruction, no doubt. But through the Sethite line, through the line of Seth, people begin to call on God's name. Praise God. And so as this next section in Genesis begins, we see Moses now developing a new line. Not, Not the line of Cain, but now the line of Seth. And in that, God renews his blessing with his covenant people, with the people that he's created. The people then, in turn, begin to call on the name of the Lord. They begin to worship our God and our Creator. And so these are the the generations in the line of Seth. From Adam, not through Cain, but through Seth. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, I want you to notice here in verses 3 and 4 the parallels of these Edenic reminders in verses 1 and 2. There's a reflection of what Moses writes in 1 and 2 here represented in 3 and 4. Uh, the first is this. God creates man in 5.1, and in 5.3, Adam fathers Seth. Adam fathering Seth is a reflection of God creating mankind. 
And then, in verse 2, God names man. And in verse 3, Adam names Seth. Okay? You see how Adam is participating in God's Edenic design there, right? Adam's reflecting what God had designed him for, even in this uh, unredeemed state, if you will, in this cursed state, all right? But I want you to notice verse 2 here. It says that God blesses man before he names him, okay? Verse 2, God blesses man. But in verse 3... <laughs> We don't find a blessing there. There's no blessing. And in fact, verse 5 goes on to say something quite striking. It says, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And then what? It says, and he died. He died. Adam died. God followed through on what he said would happen. Surely you will die if you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam dies. And church, lest we thought that the death affects only the murderer, only the polygamist, only the one who murders children, here in the midst of great hope for those who are calling on the name of the Lord, we find this heavy, heavy reality check. Adam dies. Adam dies. And see, though the blessings of Eden continue in many ways, they don't continue in all ways. Though the blessings of Eden continue in many forms, uh, people are, are giving birth, they're multiplying, they're subduing the earth in many ways. The blessings of Eden don't continue in all ways. The seed of original sin persists, even in those who now call on the name of the Lord. And, and though the image of God remains, and though the mandate of God to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth continues, both God's image and God's mandate have now become stained with the seed of original sin. They become marred. They become, they become assaulted in many ways, if you will. Even those in the line of death, in, in the line of Seth. <laughs> Seth and death mix, and Seth dies, and so does, right? The text continues, church. There are ten generations represented here. Ten generations in Genesis 5, and for five generations following Adam to the sixth generation, the format is the same, and it's according to this, verses 6 through 8. It says, when, De when Seth, there I did it again, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and what? He died. And Seth died as well. And Seth fathers Enosh here. He's 105, and he has Enosh. And then he has other sons and daughters. He lives another 807 years after that, and then he dies. And then the text says that, that Enosh lives 90 years after, after he fathers, or before he fathers Kenan, and then he lives another 815 years having other sons and daughters, and he dies. And then Kenan fathers Mahalalel, and Mahalalel fathers Jared, and Jared fathers Enoch, all in the same format. The years don't particularly matter, uh, except for this. Each one is participating in the Edenic mandate. Each one is multiplying and, and filling the earth and subduing it. And God is blessing them with a long life, with many children. And yet, in the end, they all die. <laughs> they all meet the same fate. That is, <laughs> until the seventh generation until the seventh generation. Pick it up with me in verse 18. It says, When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after, after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Jared died. Okay? 
Same format as before. Jared lives a long life, but still he, he doesn't escape the curse. He dies, but then he, he and his wife give birth to Enoch. And this is astonishing. This is beautiful. Look at this. Verses 21 to 24. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Do you notice what's missing here, church, in this formula that we've established? What doesn't happen with Enoch? Enoch doesn't die. It says that he was not, but it doesn't say that he he died. There's a break in the format. Sometimes what's not in the text is equally as important as what is, right? And the language in verse 24 is significant. It says that God took Enoch uh, like he took Elijah in 2 Kings 2. The, the same word took is used in both texts. And see, before Elijah died, God sent uh, chariots of fire. And verse 11 in 2 Kings 2 says that Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. We get more details with Elijah. But it's clear here, church, in the way of Elijah, God also spares Enoch from the Edenic curse. God spares Enoch from death. And in Enoch, as well as one more place in the genealogy, which we're going to come to in a minute, we find two respites for the righteous. We find two respites for for the righteous, two samples that remind the Israelites of what's truly important. And it has nothing to do with becoming giants. It has nothing to do with becoming giants. Verse 22 says, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And church, the grammar here indicates this isn't a one-time walk, okay? This isn't something that, that, that happens in one emotional moment, uh, maybe at a conference, uh, maybe when, when you're young, you go to a place like districts, and, and you make a, an emotional decision, but you come back and nothing's different, right? It's not like that. Church, Enoch's walk with God, according to the grammar here, is, is a consistent walk. It's a walk that, that carries with him into his life. In fact, it says that Enoch walked with God in the text for 300 years. That, that's a long time to walk with God, amen? It's a long time. And church, it was Enoch who first demonstrated this concept of what, what walking with God is all about. Uh, how often do we ask each other, and maybe not enough, but hey, how's your walk going? How's your walk with Jesus? What's it look like? Tell me about it. How are you doing these days with God? It, it comes from Enoch's walk. Enoch was the first to be, uh, to, to be described as one who walked with God. And here's what's profound, church. Enoch knew that walking with God was more important than walking for God. <laughs> walking with God is more important than walking for God. Friend, how, how's your walk with God going these days? Let's ask that of ourselves. How's our walk with God going? What does it look like for us to walk with God before walking for Him? There's a lot to do for God, amen? There's a lot of ministry out there. There's a lot of opportunity to represent Jesus to a dying world. We talk a lot about that around here. But I wonder, how's your walk with God going before you go out and walk for God? I love how Marcus Dodd describes Enoch's walk. He takes some liberty here, but I I think it's helpful. He says, when he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks with him again. (laughs) When he falls into sin, when the relationship is broken, he's not satisfied until he comes back to God. And then God says, this is the general nature of walking with God. It's a persistent endeavor to hold all of our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. 
It's to open to him all our purposes and hopes to seek his judgment on our scheme of life and idea of happiness. It's to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. It's to be aware that God has set the mark. And he invites us to live in his righteousness, in his goodness as he's defined it. And it's to to be dissatisfied, a holy dissatisfaction until we're walking next to him, aligned with his priorities. Church, yes, the Edenic curse is tragic. The fall of mankind is tragic. And the effects of original sin are devastating, as we saw last week in the story of Cain. But death doesn't have the final word. And in the midst of our experience of this curse, God continues to avail himself to us as we choose to walk with him. As we choose to walk with him. Who who are you walking with these days? The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In Genesis 3.8, we read that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we presume that meant that God, this was God's habit, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This was God's ideal. God and Adam and Eve, God and humanity enjoyed each other's company. They enjoyed each other's rest. And church, when we align ourselves with God's priorities, we can't walk back into the garden. That's been blocked off by the cherubim. That's not ours anymore, this side of heaven. But we can participate still in reflections of Eden. (laughs) When we walk with God, we can experience God's rest and his fullness and his goodness. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Friends, who, who are you walking with today? Who are you walking with? Are you walking with God or are you plotting your own course? There's only one way to the green pastures that Psalm 23 describes. Is God the one leading you? Is God your shepherd? Who are you walking with? Now, in verses 25 to 27, Enoch's son, Methuselah, fathers a man named Lamech. Now, we've heard that name before, haven't we? (laughs) Lamech is in Genesis 4 as the polygamist, as the one who murders a young person, right? Now, here in Genesis 5, the same name, different person, okay? And it's this beautiful sort of redemption of the name. Now, here, Lamech, a different person with the same name, he flips the script. I want you to look at what happens in verses 28 and 29. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. (laughs) Next week's going to be exciting, all right? He called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Church, I'm convinced that the Lamech of Genesis 5 has not forgotten God's word to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Remember what God said to the serpent? He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, Lamech has has hope in God's promise. Lamech has hope that God has promised to crush the head of the serpent, that sin does not win the final day. Lamech doesn't hope for something. He hopes in something. He hopes in what God had promised. There would be a child of Eve who would crush the serpent. And somehow God God indicates more specifics of that promise to Lamech in in saying, in effect, look, I'm going to do something through your son. I'm going to do something through Noah. I'm going to deliver you from the effects of the curse as you're now experiencing them. I'm going to bring deliverance through Noah. I'm going to make good on my promise. It's not going to be how you expect, but watch this. 
And so Noah enters the scene. And in verse 32, it says, After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Church, God designed the cosmos as his temple. And it was very good. God created humanity and it was very good. God loved what he created. And yet humanity rebelled against God and and promptly faced a harsh and heavy reality check. Humanity faced death. And yet, God offers a respite for the righteous, demonstrated in Enoch's walk with God and Lamech's hope in God. (laughs) I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at the darkness of this world and and I'm prone to lament. I, I can despair. When I see the darkness in myself, when I see my own propensity to sin, and to act selfishly, when I, when I look at the world and I see all that we're struggling with and how we're, we're often redefining righteousness according to worldly values instead of according to biblical values, I can be frustrated and I'd imagine you can be too. All we see sometimes is the dying part of the curse. All we see is the depraved part. All we see is the golf game that doesn't cut it. <laughs> but friend, if, if that's you, be comforted. When we walk with God, God blesses. When we recognize our need for God, God God shows up with the right person and the right resource. Not always in the way that we expect. We often expect prosperity now. God says, I'll give you prosperity, but you might have to wait for it for a while. But he always shows up. There's hope in the midst of all the dying, of all the death. There's hope in the darkness. Now that said, Again, the full realization of that hope is for another time. The offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. But not yet. It gets worse before it gets better. And so listen to this. Genesis 6, 1 through 5. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My Spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack this passage here, but I, I want to ask, does anyone remember the term Nephilim from verse 4, from earlier in our conversation today? Ne- Nephilim. Uh, we, we, we talked about it with the spies that went in uh, through Kadesh Barnea into the promised land. Uh, the text says there in Numbers 13, there were giants in the land, and it refers to them as the Nephilim. <laughs> and the people said, we don't, we don't want to go in there. Those guys are too big. Not, not for me, not for us. Now, there's been a lot of debate over the meaning of Genesis 6 here. A lot of scholars have, have weighed in, and frankly, it's one of the more difficult passages in all of the Old Testament to, to interpret. Okay? And, and so I'm going to do my best here, but if you find somebody that disagrees with me, it doesn't mean they're a heretic, all right? It just means that they're probably smarter than I am, all right? But I'm going to give it my best shot. And see, one of the pe- challenges in this passage is to identify uh, who are these Nephilim, who are these people. And how do they relate to the Nephilim in Numbers 13? And here's what I think, church. Clearly in Genesis, they're the offspring of these sons of God who we'll need to define here in a minute. 
But what we see is that, that these are great men who are born of forbidden unions, of negative unions, of non God-designed unions. And in fact, these men are quite mighty. These Nephilim, they're powerful. They're, they're men of renown. And yet, as we'll soon see, the Nephilim are subject to the waters of the flood. They're wiped away from the face of the earth. And so we have to ask two things, okay? Well, number one, why does verse four refer to the Nephilim as those uh, who were in those days and also afterward? Look at, look at verse four. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. Why does it refer to them as also afterward? And if they're destined to die in the flood, then how do they show up again in Numbers 13? These are a couple of problems. And here's my answer. Okay? Nephilim is a generic term for mighty men. It's a generic term to describe some specific men here in Genesis 6, but also uh, generally mighty men who might appear unnaturally strong and powerful and, and who represent those who seek to demonstrate might and power apart from the provision of God's grace and provision of God's power. And so as, as Moses writes during a time where the people of Israel needed to learn to trust God in the face of the Nephilim, in the face of the giants, he reminds us of giants' destiny, of the destiny of the Nephilim of old. Even giants do, do not escape the effects of the curse, as we'll see. In other words, Moses says to the people, look, yes, I understand that you fear people like the Nephilim, but we've seen them before, and they're nothing compared to God's power and glory. Now, another interpretive challenge here is what to do with this term, sons of God. Okay? And I know we're getting a little technical. Stay with me here if, if you can. Uh, the, the term sons of God. Who are these sons of God? And again, this is a challenging passage. And some would say that the sons of God are fallen angels. And others would say that, that the sons of God are a reference to the Sethite line. These people who are coming down in the line of Seth. And, and others would say they're simply tyrannical rulers. And, and all actually have reasonable rationale for their claims. For me, I understand the terms son of uh, sons of God to refer to angelic beings, okay? They're, they're fallen angels, more specifically. And because I preached through First Peter earlier this year, I just can't get past the reference to this passage in First Peter 3 and also Jude, which indicate as such. You can listen to that message from First Peter 3 if you want to go deeper. But that said, as I continue to wrestle with this passage, and, and as I consider how unlikely it would be for angels to in and of themselves impregnate women, I, I agree with folks like Alan Ross and Bruce Walke who claim that the sons of God are very likely mere men, albeit they men of high repute, but who also come under the controlling influence of uh, fallen angels, of, of demons. In other words, these, these are people who are demon-possessed. Okay. Now, we could spend the rest of our time on that this morning. You wouldn't like me very much if we did, all right? And I'm convinced that if we did, we'd miss the main point of the passage. Okay. See, after a whole chapter of descent into death, after Adam died, after Seth died, after Enosh died, and Kenan died, and Mahalalel died, and Jared died, and Enoch lived, but then Methuselah died, and Lamech died, the earth was plunged into a mess, into a sorry state. 
And after these demon-possessed rulers began to impregnate, even those in the line of Seth who had begun to call on the name of the Lord, verses 5-7, through uh, says this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Church, the the, the point of the passage is this. Because of the utter depravity into which mankind had slipped, the the Lord regrets his creation, and, and, and he commits to removing them from the earth. Whatever you think about the Nephilim and the sons of God, it's a mess. Sin has run rampant. And the Lord regrets what he's created. That's a powerful thing to say. How does that happen? See, as as Moses warns the people of Israel to regard God over the Nephilim, he highlights the trajectory of creation prior to the flood. He highlights the path that these people uh, chose in order to become what they were, which, which are reprobates. These are people whose rejection of God's provision is so severe, so committed, that they're going to fall in a final way under God's judgment. They've rejected God. And church, by examining their path, we not only discover what humanity is capable of in general, but we also discover our, our own vulnerability to the effects of sin, this side of Eden. And see, there's a progression here that led people down this path away from God, and, and we do well to observe it. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Okay? They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Church, you remember what happened in Genesis 3? When Eve was standing there with the serpent, and the serpent convinces her not to believe God, the text says that she saw that the fruit on the tree looked good. It was pleasing. And she took it. She saw that the fruit looked good. Here, uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. In church, their desire for these women was activated. God, God created mankind, male and female, to exist in marriage relationships that are one flesh and that are unified under and with God's blessing. But here, the sons of God look at these women who are, would have been forbidden. The text makes that clear. And, and they, they, they desire what is unnatural and unblessed. And church, there are times when you and I are faced with desires that are not of God. Amen? We're going to be tempted to think evil thoughts about our spouse or our co-worker or that person who sits on the other side of the church sanctuary or that colleague who, who works above us at the clinic. Or we're going to see a business opportunity and we're going to think, you know what, if I just fudge the books a little bit, I can take hold of this. I deserve this. It's coming to me. All I have to do is cheat just a little bit. Or we're going to look at that person who's not our spouse and say, you know what, my spouse doesn't cut it for me. I'm going to just indulge in this and I deserve it. But church, what you do with that desire has everything to do with whether you're pursuing the path of Enoch and Lamech or whether you're on the path of destruction. Look what happens next in the text. Verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, church, their desire gave way to their intent. 
Their desire gave way to their intent. They made a resolution. They made a plan. And in this case, they're consumed by their rebellion. It's all they can think about. They rejected the Lord's provision in favor of their own knowledge of good and evil. And the results were catastrophic. See, finally, they, they, they put their plan into action. Their desire led to their intention, led to their action. Just as Eve took the fruit and ate it, so they too, uh, these sons of God, took the daughters of men as their wives, any they chose. Verse 2. Friends, be careful not to let desire breed intent because before you know it, you're going to commit to an action that you can't take back. And for these people at this stage in human history, their sin had led them past the point of recovery. Hence verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Church, here we see God's response to humanity's sin. And Alan Ross uh, describes it as God's pain and God's plan. God responds with pain and a plan. And, and, and verse 6 says, The Lord regretted making mankind. It grieved him. God, God created a perfect temple into which he invited mankind to rest and to enjoy. And yet humanity thumbed its nose at its creator. And God was grieved. You ever watch somebody you love make choices that you knew were destructive? You knew would be destructive. You don't relish in that. You grieve over that. So too does God. God grieves at our sin. And here God is grieved to such a point where there's no recovery for the people. But church, God, God is righteous. And he's unwilling to allow sin to run unchecked. And so just as humanity resolved, intended to, to do evil, God, God's resolve was bigger. And God resolved, he intended to make things right. And he makes a plan. And here's the plan, verse 7, at least the first part of it. It says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Church, the Apostle Paul teaches in the book of Romans that, that there is a point at which God is no longer willing to let sin run amok. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is poured out against sin. And, and then in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They, they listened to the serpent. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Church, when the people of Israel looked out into the promised land and they saw the Nephilim, they saw the giants, they lost sight of their creator and they put faith in themselves. And Moses warns them, hey, don't do this. Look what happens to giants. Look what happened to the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Don't suffer the same fate. Church, God's plan for sin is judgment. It's judgment. God hates sin. 
in any culture or family or church or individual who falls into the habit of calling sin righteous and righteousness sin ought to be very aware of what they're doing. They ought to be careful because God eventually gives us what we ask for in judgment. If we stiff arm God our whole lives, we say, God, I'll define righteousness. Thank you very much. I'm going to do what feels good to me. I'm going to go about my business. You go about yours. If we reject God and his gift of salvation as represented in his word, guess what? God finally says, okay, okay, you can have what you're asking for. Judgment is real. You want impurity? You want lust? You want to dishonor God's creation design? Okay, you can have it, but you're not like, going to like what you're left with. You're not going to like what you have left. But church, praise God, even in this dark descent, <laughs> judgment isn't the final word. It's not the only option. Because look at this. I love how the Old Testament has these little sprinklings of beauty and grace, even in the midst of the darkness. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, verse 9 next week is going to show us that Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. Noah did. And yet, this is profound. See, the favor of God comes before the following of God. God bestows his favor before we choose to follow him. Church, grace before works. Noah found favor with God, not because of anything that he had done. The text doesn't indicate that Noah had done anything to earn God's favor at this point. Church, I'm convinced that God's favor is an act of God's grace. Yes, God will judge sin, but God also extends grace, and ultimately grace wins the day. <laughs> See, God would save the world temporarily through Noah. God would preserve humanity. God would preserve the animal kingdom through Noah. But church, God would save the world eternally through Jesus Christ. It's by grace that we're saved through faith in Christ alone. <laughs> we rehearse that often here. Church, salvation is by what? Through what? In who? And where? Alone. Alone. By grace through faith in Christ alone. Friend, the day's going to come when you're going to see giants in the land. It, come for all, it comes for all of us. You're going to see giants in the land and you're faced with a choice. What do I do? <laughs> and, and for some of us, our instinct is going to be to try to rise up to the occasion, to, to build our own kingdom, to develop enough acumen, enough wisdom, enough power, enough strength to say, I don't care about those giants. I can take care of this myself. Perhaps we might even try to become a giant in order to fight the giant. But I suggest to you that trying to become a giant apart from God has disastrous consequence. <laughs> Instead, let me challenge you. Follow Enoch's example. Instead, walk with God. And let God fight your giants. He desires to, church. Let God fight your giants. How do you do that? <laughs> Well, one of the ways is that you worship regularly. You saturate yourself with the people of God in the word of God and the worship of God. And church, here you are. Good job. You're on the way. <laughs> Praise God for that. You read his word. 
You open Scripture and let God's Word, like the Bereans, define how you think and who you are. You can do, do that in a number of ways. You can use the Bible reading plan that we do here together at Cornerstone. You can, you can open the daily devotionals that you can get in your email or on a podcast. There are all kinds of resources to help you digest God's Word. Some of you say, you know what, I'm not good at reading. You can listen to God's Word. You can watch it on YouTube. There are all kinds of ways to let God's Word define who you are. God's Word is essential in our walk with Him. And you know what? We need other people to help us in that process too, don't we? (laughs) We need other people. And so you can join a growth group. You can get involved in men's or women's ministry. You can serve in a role where people know you, where you know them, and they can come up to you as the elders do to me sometimes and say, hey, how's your walk going? How are you doing with Jesus? What does this look like in your life today? Church, we have the gift of prayer. We can talk to God. God gives us an audience with Him anytime we want. We simply need to turn our attention towards Him and invite Him in. You can walk with God in any number of ways. How's your walk going today? I don't ask that as a form of, of guilt sending. I ask that in for, as a, a form of, hey, there's a resource available to you. Are you using it? I want you to as your friend, as your pastor. As your fellow struggler, there's a resource. It's called a walk with God. Are you using it today? Will you walk with God? And you know what's amazing about walking with God? The Bible says in Matthew 11, Jesus said, my yoke is easy <laughs> and my burden is light. Friends, it's, 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 not a, it's not a burden to walk with God. In fact, when we walk with God, when we walk with Jesus, he carries our burden for us. And so when you see those giants, guess what? They're no big thing to Jesus. He's got them. We can trust him, even in the darkest of moments. But he, he, he waits on us to walk with him, to say yes to him. Church, we must walk with God if we're to experience his fullness. But first, before we walk, we need to receive. We need to receive God's grace. Church, God is going to deliver Noah and his family through the flood. And he's going to deliver you too if you let him. The question is, are you going to trust him? Are you going to agree with what he reveals about himself and his word? Are you going to fear God or are you going to fear the giants? Is your happiness going to rest in your own ability or in God's ability to save you? And friends, we can get that straight even today. Let's pray. Lord, I... I have to think that there are those listening to my voice that aren't yet straight on whether they've received the grace that is available to them. That have yet to to find your favor because they've yet to admit their sin as we we, we read earlier in 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. There are those here today that are trying to fight their battles on their own. They're trying to become giants in order to fight giants. But God, thank you that you have become everything that we need. And that only by putting our faith and trust in you can we be saved. And so if there's anybody that has yet to call on the name of the Lord, Lord, would you lead them to do that even right now? To admit they're falling short of your standard of righteousness. And to cry out for forgiveness in repentance. To say no to sin and yes to what you provide. 
and to put their faith and trust in you, Jesus, who died on a Roman cross to suffer not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, dying uh, to sin and its hold on humanity as our representative, and then getting up out of that grave in victorious righteousness. Lord, may they put their faith in you and what you've accomplished, and in that, receive this gift of grace made available only by you. God, help us to walk with you as Enoch walked, even in the midst of the darkness around us, and to trust you in all these things for your name's sake. And here we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.